Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. So, Katie, for our listeners who don't know you, can you tell us something? Give us your summary, who you are and what you do. Yeah, um, I'm Katie Levy. I'm a software engineer working at Amazon in New York City. Um, I work in the Amazon Fashion Org, and my team is primarily responsible for the size recommendation feature. So when you're buying shoes or apparel, which you probably all all will do for Prime Day, um, it will give you a size (laughs) recommendation based off of your previous purchases um, and other insights from other customers. Um, kind of outside of work, I'm a big proponent for Kotlin, functional programming, reactive programming. Um, I love all those things. I love talking about all of those and teaching people about them. Um, that's a quick summary on me. So you introduced Kotlin when you were working at Intuit. You like moved um, teams to Kotlin from Java? Yeah, yeah. So when I first uh, started at Intuit, I was on the Android team, and it was kind of around the time when Kotlin was getting popular, um, but a lot of people were still on Java. Um, I was kind of at the bottom of the totem pole on the team since I was the youngest, but I started learning Kotlin um, and and fell in love with it, as most people do, um, and kind of introduced it to my team. they're kind of hesitant about it because a lot of them were very Java-focused developers for many, many years. Um, there were quite a few challenges, but got through that, got the team to start using it more and more, and then it kind of expanded it to other teams uh, within the company and really pushed for it for more back-end services, which it's not as known for. It's more known for Android development. So that was obviously had challenges as well. But um, I do want to hear more more about all that. I know that you and Shelly right gave a talk um, at least once at KotlinConf a couple of years ago, and and at I think other places as well about about this whole journey of of being able to uh, take a, a team and help them move to Kotlin. So I definitely want to hear all about all that. Um, Bruce is shutting the window because there was a dog barking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, in that talk, yeah, we kind um, of went through like different like, techniques. Oh, one, one sec. Sorry. Bruce. Oh, yeah. What sort of uh, resistance or, you know, what the, the thing is when we, when Svetlana and I were writing the book, we weren't, we were just looking at, you know, how do you explain this clearly? But I hadn't really been exposed to, people who are like struggling with it, deciding whether they liked it or not. I mean, what, what sort of things did you encounter when you were trying to move sort of diehard Java programmers over to Kotlin and what, what changed them? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them, when they first looked at the language, they kind of thought like, what's the big benefit? I don't, I see all these cool pieces for it. And the conciseness is great, but is it really worth it to migrate a service over? And is it worth learn it a to, whole new language? Yeah, and new- invest the time to learn the language, uh, get ramped up on it in order to be able to code it with expertise um, and not create any production bugs from not knowing the language well. Um, mm. So that was a big hesitancy. Um, Just kind of the fear then, of the unknown. Yeah, yeah, a lot of big fear of unknown. Um, a lot of the developers I was working with had have been programming 
forever in Java. And so they were comfortable with it. And we had a lot of feature demands. So we were just constantly working on new features and didn't really have time to learn something new unless you did it outside of work. Um, And that was a big pain and a big Mm. scaring point of what if I fall behind because the rest right. of the team is learning this new I've language. I've got deadlines, so how? Yeah, I've got the deadline. Yeah. yeah, and how do I and, how do I find the time to learn a whole new language when when yeah. I you know I've got this never ending list of things to work on? So exactly, yeah. and What's, there's uh, real quick. Bruce stepped away, so I'm going to keep talking because he can't hear you. <laughs> uh, so um, I was thinking about when you were talking about the the one of the challenges with Java developers is they often don't see that that value of the new language outweighs the cost that they're going to have to invest into it. Well, and, I, I, and reasonably so because we've all been bit by overpromise, yeah, by um, languages and libraries and, you know, somebody comes along and goes, Oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. And you, you invest all this time in it and then you hit this wall yeah. And you go, oh, they didn't solve that problem, right? Yeah, you, the the you hit the point where you realize that the the marketing hype doesn't live up to what your expectations were. But yeah. you only know that by investing all that time and energy into this tool. I've done that numerous times. So I did a a, a little survey thing on Twitter a year or something ago, and I asked. Uh, okay, if you're a Java developer and you haven't yet migrated to Kotlin, why? And give them some options. And by far the biggest voted option uh, was that they were unconvinced of the value of the, the technology. So anyways, okay, Bruce is back yeah. and we can hear you now. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even for um, a lot of the features, there are some Java kind of equivalents. So a big one I hear is data classes has, Lombok for Java. It's very yeah. similar. You just add the annotations and you get kind of the same value without changing whole languages. Um, another one, I'm trying to think of another one that I think of, um, like the null safety. People are yeah. like, well, you can it's like, use oh, just optional. use optional. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's workarounds for things. Um, they're kind of like, well, we, we already figured that out for Java. Yeah. And with newer versions of Java, they'll be adding in these new features that people like, like so much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so I guess if you like have columns and you list the features, mm-hmm. it's like, check, check. They both have both of these. Yeah. So then it's, it becomes hard. And if you're looking at it from that. From way, the, I've been writing Java code, you know, starting at the beginning of college all through my career and now you're telling me you want to make this fundamental shift underneath, you know, and I'm going to have to go back to being as dumb as I was when I was learning Java. Right. That that's doesn't sound fun. I don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah, um, exactly. No, that's the complete sentiment of like, why start over if I already know this language so well, I can do it really well mm-hmm. and write in it really well. And all of our applications already in the language. Why change it? Um, yeah. I guess to, to counter that, um, it's it's harder with some people over others. Um, it's it's interesting being on different teams and kind of going through a, the same process. Um, well, iterating on the process, but trying to do the same thing on different teams. Um, 
like some people are very eager to learn new things and some people are just happy with what they have. Um, so people are at different paces. Um, but I think the best way to really convince people is actually having them code in the language. And you almost have to like force the team into a, a learning session series um, to get them to try it out build expertise on the team in this at the same time and convince them through that. And once you get to the collection section of Kotlin, people are like mind blown on, I can do this with a collection and not have to do all this normal Java code that I have to write. Um, that's mm-hmm. really a convincing point. And they just see it and feel it more so than being told it. So did you do what, like brown bag lunches or did you set aside time to do, um, you know, training or? Yeah, I've done both. Um, I've done a training session for the team and just found a Udemy course or a Coursera course and just blocked off the time. You know, obviously figured it out with the manager. I want to have this amount of time blocked off for our team to learn the new language that will give these rewards in the future. Um, are then you probably have to, yeah, you have to convince management yeah. that it's worth investing time yeah, into. Yeah, that's like a whole nother topic. <laughs> <laughs> you have to convince yeah. developers and the leadership. Um, are very different strategies. But um, yeah, once you get the training time, you kind of make it a team activity. Uh, so people have it blocked off in their calendars to all go together. Um, go together it can be yeah. like, team bonding too um mm-hmm. and then i've done uh kind of once it's going more for the rest of the org and the company just a learning series session of whoever wants to come uh, and that's more to get other people presenting different things sharing code from their projects um giving you know presentations on new features that they've learned um, that's a good way to build the community aspect of it after you build the foundation um, of the new language. So our friend Bill, who's a co-author on this book that we're working on, um, he was working at a Java company and they had hack days or something. And his thing was, oh, I'm going to take a piece of code that's already written and running in Java and I'm going to rewrite it in Kotlin and you know insert it back in. And what he came away with was the biggest... Uh, benefit was uh, null handling, you know, versus yeah. Java. And Do you have any data on like how how many fewer null pointer exceptions you got in production, like or whatever? Like, I know Google actually has data on this for because Google is is using Kotlin more and more internally for for both server side and for Android apps. And so we actually have some data on on how many fewer null pointer exceptions we encounter and stuff. But yeah, curious if you have um, anything on that. Yeah, I've done um, just like more of a low level, like when I was doing Android development, just for a new feature. That was kind of my proof of concept to the team of I'm going to convert this or yeah, convert this new feature into Kotlin. This is how many crashes we have from null pointer exceptions, and after the feature is fully in Kotlin. You know, we, we have none um, yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. code's a lot more concise. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, having less lines of code isn't necessarily always the best, but it can be better to be more concise. Um, well, it's kind of easy with Java because Java is so verbose and bloated in its syntax. So less than that, 
is is gonna look yeah. good. Well, and more expressive, like the yeah. code. This is really hard to measure, but when the code better matches the problem that it's trying to solve, mm-hmm. or better expresses it, then there's huge value in that. But that's a really hard thing to measure, like quantitatively. So I have a question about. Um, uh, well, I mean, we're immersed in this book where you know monadic thinking is really essential for what we're trying to do. And now I'm looking back on Kotlin and going, well, I mean, there's some, you know, there's the compromise that was made where, no, we're not going to have monads, but we will have, you know, we've erased null pointer exceptions, but now we're going to use null to indicate, okay, whatever function you're calling, the result is either a value or null. And we'll wire that into the system and we'll have compiler support for it. But it's not really, I mean, at least I don't think of that as a monadic thing. Maybe you do. I'm not sure. But without, with you know, I'm starting to go, huh, can we do like the full-blown functional programming without having a monad support? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um I mean, I I try to avoid nulls when I can, um, and I do like for Kotlin the the arrow functional programming library with okay. the different types like try. Um, that and one's monadic, good. Then monadic types. So yeah, you're, yeah. You're, and we should give a little bit of background that you also have done a lot of functional programming and teaching people functional programming, and so you've kind of gone that next step from Kotlin to Kotlin with Arrow and gone much deeper into the functional programming world. But not everyone in the Kotlin world is there, and maybe not everyone should go directly to that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting um, when I was first kind of teaching Kotlin to one of my teams, they didn't really know functional programming that well. Um, and they hadn't really used Java 8 that much either. So mm-hmm. streams was kind of a new concept to them. Um, I remember Just even things time, like map, mapping on a yeah, collection map, or something. Yeah, map, filter, yeah. Um, the, even just the for each on it. Um, I remember one of the engineers looking at it and being like, what is this like map? And I'm like, it's the same in Java 8. It's just you you have to learn the, the streams part of it and then it then gets to Kotlin. But I, I do think- You didn't nowadays, say, oh, it's just a functor. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> no, no. I, mean, I try to avoid the, the words, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think Kotlin's a great way to also teach functional programming concepts to people. Um, and a lot of the engineers on my team now, um, they're a lot of them are just out of school. Um, so they're kind of in, entering the industry, learning new styles of programming and such, and haven't really been exposed to functional programming as much. And they see Kotlin and learning Kotlin with those functional programming concepts helps them even with their Java code that they write because they understand, okay, I can write things a little bit differently. And Kotlin kind of encourages you to write in more functional programming style. Yeah, more the immutable and more functors and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so kind of back to Bruce's question, like, like monads, like, like you, when is the right time to teach somebody monads and when is the right time to like bring it into a team? Yeah, I've, um, 
I mean, for me, I learned about monads. Like from my experience, I felt like I I liked the way that it was kind of brought into my um, realm of knowledge. I, oh, I want to hear that story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky. I had this great mentor. Um, he actually started the functional programming. Uh, learning series it's kind of a brown bag kind of thing similar to what I was doing for Kotlin um, that I took from his one that he did for functional programming and that's how I was introduced functional programming Um, it was more voluntary it wasn't necessarily for a specific team and he would just go through like refactor code that was the best was doing the the live coding together and we went through the um, functional programming in Java book and that was uh, before I even knew Kotlin at all, and it was it was helpful to see it hands on. And once I had a good grasp of it, then he started introducing to the group the words, and he would say, you know, you use this every day. Now you can just understand what the word actually means. So you, you know, it's more theoretical. Um, some of the sessions definitely went over my head, um, and I would be like, I have no idea what's going on, but. Maybe now if I if I went through a similar thing, I would kind of understand it better. But it would be nice to have those different levels of uh, rigor in it. Um, some being very philosophical about um, what is functional programming and more conceptual. And then some being more hands-on. This is what you should do more for your code base. Uh, so combining the two is good. And, and after you have a foundation of of what you're doing, then it's nice to get the introduction to the words and the concepts, I think. Yeah. I'm trying to remember back in, I don't know, what was it? Third grade when we learned basic arithmetic, we'd learned at some point, all right, one plus two is the same as two plus one. And then I think, I think the way that it worked was that then later they're like, oh, and that's commutativity or whatever. Depends (laughs) on your teacher. Yeah. I think they usually tried to, throw it all together huh but it'd be interesting to look through some of those maps yeah. and see how how those concepts work but i produce. think for me showing the mechanics and the problem that you're trying to solve saying here's here's how we solve this problem here's what the problem is here's how we solve it and by the way we call that thing a monad and math backs us up on that but we're not gonna we're not gonna explain the math because you know you don't you've seen it work. Trust us. There's mathematical proofs behind this, right? You know, why you need to be able to flat map and whatever else you do. Yeah. It was, it's just so that your code is easier now. Well, and you, you have expectations that you can make on how you can reason about it, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, like when you're describing a monad to, you know, what is a monad? How do you do that? What, what's your oh man description? Yeah, huh? uh, right. Well, no, no, if we don't I, keep asking that question, we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna get the answer. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to describe, and I know I know people are sometimes very picky about the definition. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's tricky. Um, I I would say um, it's it's a way to kind of. Um, like you, you kind of create every, I mean, functional programming is based on creating sort of mathematical equations with your code. 
you have your input and your output um, and you don't have side effects necessarily going on um, in between. And a monad is kind of a way to uh, sort of simplify that process by um, by having some sort of operation on an object. Um, and that object is kind of contained within uh I guess I think you would say a monad and that monad can be operated on uh, with map, flat map filter um, to to do these different operations together um, and kind of chain them in a sequential order and get a final output at the end. Um, I don't know if that's the best definition, but <laughs> something <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> It, it agrees with other things that I've heard. I'm starting to look at it in terms of um, so, and, you know, this is not a polished definition, but so you call a function and you get a result. And typically that result is just the value that you're looking for. But there are these other things that can happen like failure. So let's, that's an easy one to understand. Let's start with failure. So how do we express that? Well, we make a little package and inside the package, we put potentially the result and potentially the failures. And that package, which is returned from the function is the monad. And we want to make it easy to use that. Like, as you say, when you're chaining functions together and things. So we go to math and math says, oh, well, if you want to easily extract the value, then uh, you know, flat maps, an easy way to do it. And then in Scala, we even have the for comprehension with the arrows that does that automatically. So that's all to make that process easier. And um, then once, and then I feel like, okay, once we introduce that, then we can introduce the more uh, complete monad that Zio provides. But, but getting that idea mm-hmm. of, oh, there's more information here than just the plain result that we want to know. So you can disagree with that or clarify it or whatever, but I, right now that's where my mind is in terms of explaining it. Yeah. And I, I, I do like that approach. Um, it is conceptually hard for people to, to shift the mindset of non-functional approach to functional approach of chaining these things and not having shared state somewhere saying, oh, I'm going to mutate this variable and operate mm-hmm. on this. Um, and it's, it's conceptually hard for people to think, like, I need to operate on something and return back something else that I'm going to operate on next and, and continue through the process. I even think it's interesting for um, a lot of, like, reactive programming libraries like Project Reactor, they that's the approach they kind of take with Mono. Um, even Optional kind of takes that approach of operating on the optional object. Um, so you see a lot of these libraries have those concepts pulled in um, that encourages people to learn about it. So I kind of see everything kind of going in that direction, I would hope. I think it's definitely easier to do. Um, but yeah, it, it's a hard that's... mind shift that it is well and i'm i i think that to identify it as a mind shift from the way that we would traditionally chain stuff together was through storing this information 
into mutable state. And that, that, that was our primary method of chaining stuff. And now with monads, we chain stuff not through mutable state, but through type parameters. I think as Bruce and I were talking this morning about there's some connection between monads and type parameters, or you could call it per, uh, uh, parametric uh, polymorphism. polymorphism yeah. Parametric polymorphism, which mm-hmm. is just saying polymorphism through um, generics. Generics, yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. way to put it. And there's some connection there between monads and, and parametric polymorphism. And I think that maybe that's part of it is what you're identifying is that instead of using mutable state to to do that chaining, instead, we're trying to encode that kind of metadata about the chain into the actual type system. And that's part of what makes monads unique. But I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we're still figuring yeah. Well, out. yeah. And, and we've been asking this question for, I know, years, several years among us here and and among other folks, and you, everybody's got a different answer. You know, some some people want to call it a burrito, or uh, there's one with railroad tracks, and there's yeah, like the railway program, the railway pro, railway oriented programming. And I feel like all of that, maybe it's assuming, maybe I think what often happens is people under people internalize the concept maybe without fully understanding it, and then well, we learn through metaphors about it, but we're not actually understanding the, the under, under the metaphor. Yeah. yeah. We don't, yeah, we don't the, grasp underneath the metaphor. And so they don't always align when you put them together. And then I'm left with confusion. And fortunately part of my brain doesn't allow me to go forward until I understand all the little working parts and tiny gears and everything, because I know I'm going to have to explain that to somebody and they're going to come up with a question and going, well, I don't have a metaphor that fits. What yeah. How does the, how does the underlying state change when, when you're, you know, when you're doing async and await and, oh yeah, that's right. The operating system flips a bit. And now, now, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, so your approach to doing functional programming with Kotlin is to use Arrow and Arrow has, um, fun, um, mono, monads in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I've used Arrow for some projects, not necessarily for all. It is kind of a bigger shift for people to pick up. Um, sure. and you definitely, I, I tend to have this habit of introducing Kotlin and functional programming to the team and reactive programming and then end up leaving the team and going to another one and kind of starting over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never necessarily been able to stay around to get Arrow fully introduced, um, but I do love using it and, and learning about it. Um, but it is a nice way to make things more functional once you've had a good foundation in Kotlin and in functional programming in general. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily introduce it to a team mm-hmm. that's brand new to either of those. Mm-hmm. Um, no, because there's a lot of things. Go- I have to say, I'm, I have, I went into Kotlin very skeptically because I saw at some conference in Europe some really early version of it, and I was like, eh, that's I don't see the benefit of that. And then I think they went through some 
really significant shift. And then I, anyway, I went into it very skeptically. And as I learned all of the ins and outs, I became very impressed with the design decisions that they made, even including the one not to include monads, but just to, you know, report failure by returning a null. I've, I've come to appreciate that as a really good compromise because their goal is to seamlessly and easily integrate with Java. And that's, I mean, all the decisions that they made, I found very impressive. I think there might've been one or two that I went, I'm not sure about that one, but it was edge cases. You know, it wasn't like fundamental things. Yeah. 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 Oh, part of the part of the challenge that we have when we're trying to take existing Java developers, let's say we do hope that they get to like full functional programming with Kotlin and Arrow and um, that, but I don't. It's really hard to kind of take them typically. Oh, and reactive, right? And so there's all this like 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 we have in mind like where we would like them to get to, but just like me and my process of learning all this stuff, I had to incrementally get there. I didn't, I couldn't just go from A to Z. I had to go A to B to C to D, you know, so on. And so, so I think that Kotlin as a language is a really nice kind of B from Java. And then there's, you know, you know, we can take some more steps and get to reactive and some more steps and get to functional and, and all that. But, but yeah, I think that, that the way that you've done it with with the teams you've worked on of incrementally helping them walk down that journey is is probably the only way to do it. It's so easy for it to become overwhelming. Yeah. And you just yeah. go, "Oh, I want to I want to run back to Java cuz I I feel mm-hmm. like I have a grasp of that and you've dumped all these and I don't feel like Kotlin does that. I think it's mm-hmm. it it allows for that incremental understanding. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen um, partial of my mistake of overwhelming people. People just shut down and mm-hmm. be like, why am I doing this? This is not fun. Um, and it's I've definitely learned a lot from it. Um, there was like one pull request that, you know, people, when they learn Kotlin, they kind of write Java, Kotlin. Um, yep. They start to learn. Java without semicolons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly that's where and, i started with scala was I, yeah. I initially wrote scala which was java without semicolons and i mean it's a good place to start you kind of have to start from somewhere and as you go um learn more of the features to make it better but i i definitely made the mistake of of writing on that pull request a bunch of comments saying you should change this change this change this and it was way overwhelming way too much um and that developer just kind of shut down and was like i i don't think i should even do this let's just write it in java i'm mm. changing the whole whole request to java instead of colin and knowing what the breaking point is 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 important because you definitely don't want to overwhelm people and it's hard How much to kind chain of know. can people withstand right it? and it's yeah. going to be different for each person mm-hmm. so totally. it's, it's a it's it's a totally tricky uh, tricky domain. That's, I mean, it's really what we tried to achieve with, uh, with Atomic Kotlin was just little changes, little, little examples showing, oh yeah, this is a benefit. This is a benefit, small as possible. We'll see how, see how that pans out over the next few years. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, with that, if you're introducing it to a whole team, it's, it's important to make sure the whole team is kind of on board and moving together because you don't want to get one engineer that's, that's really excited about the language, learning about it on their own time, really investing their efforts into it. Um, and then another engineer that's not investing any time into it. And, and a few months later, kind of like, whoa, where are we at? Left this, behind, yeah. this person's totally left behind and they, they don't feel like they can contribute as much. But it is also at the same time good to have kind of uh, some sort of like champion on the team to guide everyone in the right direction and make sure things are pragmatic and, and written the right way. But well, and I think keeping people from getting stuck is huge. And one of the things that I developed over years was, and this was a purely selfish thing initially, was I would put people in pairs and they would work together. And then I wasn't the, you know, the only point of ask, you know, answering questions. They would usually take care of themselves. And then uh, eventually I developed a program to uh, every exercise period, it would change the pairs. And so that way people would get to know each other. And then they would also, the previous person that they had paired with or people, they felt comfortable asking them questions. And so eventually, you know, I barely had to ask any questions and I could just kind of rest during, but people really liked that as long as the, the pairing process was not onerous. So that's why I created that program to just do it for you here. Here's your, here's who you're pairing with go. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way. Um, I think with the hackathons, um, it kind of brought up earlier. That's another great way to introduce something new. It's very low risk, you know, pair up with somebody and write a new feature using this new language or this new technology. Um, and also similarly, having people own a fe like feature or a specific attribute of the language and presenting on it kind of makes them domain experts for that small little chunk of the language. And then if mm -hmm. anyone ever has questions in the future, you know, I'm not the one they're always coming to to ask those questions. They can go to that one person that researched that feature and, and present yeah, on it. Very good luck with the hackathon days um, when we do the, well, normally it's the winter tech forum, but this summer it's the summer tech forum. It's the summer tech forum unconference. Unconference, STFU, yes. Um, but the but the domain is just summertechforum.com. Anyway, um, we have a hackathon day in the middle of the week. And so people figure out what they want to do. And the, and the stakes are so low that like we definitely have had people who go, we struggled with this all day and didn't get anywhere. And here's the places where we got stuck. And I was like, that's good information. You know, it's like, and, and then other people like, what you, you build a, build a shot ski one year. Oh yeah. You in a, you know what a shot ski is. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. The ski it's with, with shot glasses. With shot glass. I was like, yeah. what the heck does that have to do? Just shot skis. And then we, we had to do an integration test in our presentation to right. test it out. To yeah. make sure that it worked. Oh, and it's like, it had nothing to do with programming, but it was a good, you know, you guys had fun. It was a good team building. You know, sometimes people need. And we learned some things. Like we initially glued the shot glasses on, but then you can't wash them. And so oh. then we figured out for the second iteration, you need to be able to take the shot glasses out 
and wash them. And you know, it's funny <laughs> how, you know, you go, well, that's just something in the physical world. It doesn't have anything to do with software. And I feel like it influences your design when you're designing software. When you run into problems like that, it's just anything where you make an assumption and then later discover that, oh, we missed something. Mm -hmm. That happens mm -hmm. to software all the time. So having a physical metaphor for that, I think yeah. it's there's so many things that you can't predict yeah. the benefits of. Yeah. And anyway, I just I like the idea that it's like, hey, whatever interests you, go, yeah. go play with it. If it's just some tiny little feature, that's good, too. Yeah. Well, and, and now I'm the expert on shot skis, which is great. Nice. You're the go-to. Yeah, I'm the yeah. go-to. Yeah. If I I'll have try, any... I'll try bringing that to my next uh, team hackathon and see what my manager says. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> huh. Yes. Well, right. Understanding the value of these things is, uh, well, that should be a management skill, <laughs> but very often it isn't. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. On the management side, mm -hmm. we, we touched on that a little bit, but I'd like to go back there. Like, like how, how mm. did you convince management um, to, to do this whole new thing and, and, and convince them of the value of that? Cause that takes yeah. money and time and it's going to cut into your productivity and all those things that I yeah. as manager, I, this sounds, this doesn't sound like a good idea at all to me. Yeah. How are you going to yeah. convince me? <laughs> Yeah, um, it's definitely a different approach. Um, I I had to definitely collect a lot more data around things. Um, that was one of the things seeing the null pointer exceptions causing the crashes on that feature. Um, but get a little bit broader as well. Um, my colleague Shelby and I, we wrote a technical white paper kind of targeted towards managers, not as much towards software engineers saying, okay, this is a high level of what Kotlin is, why we think it's important. These are specific features to highlight that we definitely see um, return on investment on based off of quality of the code, developer productivity. Uh, it's sometimes hard to get those kinds of metrics, but as much as we could, we would try to saying um, the ramp up speed isn't, it's not that hard to get ramped up on it if you're a new a developer to Kotlin, this is how much time we think it would take uh, to develop a new feature that normally would take this much time in Java, but written this much time in Kotlin, um, kind of things like that. And then also the tooling, that's also important of saying, this is our tech ecosystem within the company and all the different toolings we use. Is it supported for this language? Um, and that was kind of an interesting challenge. Um, Especially with like security tooling, we needed to make sure that tooling was going to work with the language and work with any of the security tooling companies to get that support so we could get it full-fledged supported on different teams and not have that be a blocker. Yeah. Um, so kind of That's a good point. With management, you need to like, they're going to be thinking yeah. about all the risks that they need, that they would need to mitigate. And if you can just hand them this white paper and say here is all those risks that you're going to think of. And here's the ways that Kotlin, you know, is related to that. And if you give that to them ahead of time, that's, that's huge. I'm yeah. Sure. Yeah. Kind of a rebuttal to all of the main questions that we were asked and main um, challenges that we faced. Uh, we just wrote it all out in one document saying, 
yeah, these are a lot of the myths that are about the language and demystify those myths uh, to say this is not necessarily the way it is. Um, it's some coding examples in it just just for some more technical managers, but a lot of it was more high level um, overview of the main features. And so is this document, it. was this an internal document or is this available? Yeah, it was internal. Uh, we ended up writing an external version of it um, that is on the Intuit blog website. Um, okay. We kind of like scraped out all the internal details that couldn't be shared. Sure. But uh, yeah, a smaller version of it is available externally. Okay, good. That's awesome. That's yeah. useful. I do remember, I think, seeing that when it was published and it got a lot of notoriety at the time, but that was now a couple of years ago. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that was a, a bit of time ago. Um, I would say it also depends on the company. Um, being at Amazon now, there's a lot of autonomy within the teams and kind of, you know, if your manager is on board and uh, you don't necessarily have to get as much buy-in from higher leadership to use a certain technology. Also, Kotlin's a lot more popular now, but uh, it's kind of a different approach as well, um, depending on the company you're at. and once maybe your manager is on board and the tech lead for that org, um, kind of like the architect level, then it might be fine. So kind of having those conversations um, with those people and really showing the benefits helps. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting. Sometimes I get buy-in from leadership, but not from the software engineers. Sometimes it's the <laughs> other way around. And so you have to maneuver your way to figure out how you can overcome those. That's that's cool. Is Shelby still at Intuit? Uh, she's actually at Twitter now. Okay, cool. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so you you have worked some with people out of college, and one of the things that that Bruce and I have have been curious about. It's been so long since we were in college and coming out of college, but I'm curious your perspective on. Um, kind of like career stuff for for people coming out of college, like like people that want to build a career in programming. Like, do you have any tips for them or guidance on like, I don't know, like like. Well, and I would layer on top of that. Your like, when did you graduate? Twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. Well, so your a young woman in the programming field. And so, you know, we've had all kinds of, oh my gosh, when I, I remember when I was working at this company fluke seeing even, even then this was, I don't know, in the eighties, it had to have been. And there were these engineering um, magazines that would come out. And even then I looked at those and I go, wait a minute, are they, it's, I mean, they were so sexist. It was just like so standard. And it was, this was the hardware. This wasn't software engineering magazine, but um, like how how has it, if, if you feel comfortable, you don't have to answer it if you don't feel comfortable, but add on to James, like how has this been for you? Do you see things getting better? Do you like, are there, are there things that you do like during an interview to see if you can figure out like, is this going to be a good place for me as a woman or am I going to get hassled and 
run into problems, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's definitely a good question. I I would say it totally depends on the team. Um, I know a lot of companies might have stereotypes, but at the end of the day, the manager and the team play a big role and your kind of org. Um, so that makes a big difference for uh, interviews. I, I definitely, when I interview, try to talk to at least one woman engineer that I'll be working with or that's in the org um, and get her perspective of what things are like just to get kind of that, that truth um, that's not necessarily going to come out from uh, other avenues. Um, I do think it's important for, for companies to have some sort of community for women. Um, there are a lot of uh, I mean, Intuit was great when I first was starting having the Tech Women at Intuit program, and that sort of built that community. Since you know, at times I would wait be a the minute. Only... Was it called Tech Women at? In... Oh, Intuit. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> at Intuit. Okay. Yeah, and it was just different workshops or uh, mentorship circles. Um, I would get mentors um, of you know really prominent people within the company, which was really nice to have that mentorship um but having those kind of activities is really helpful to build the community um i would be uh, sometimes the only woman on a team of a 25 developer team and i i just kind of got used to it after a while of, of being in a room presenting on something and and everyone was so nice um but i i do think I, I'm a big proponent of getting more women in the STEM field. Um, I have seen people hurt by being a woman in the field um, and kind of leaving because of that. Mm. Um, but I mean, I like to say things are, are better. Um, my team right now is absolutely amazing. And, and all of the developers on the team are so respectful to me. Um, I do feel like I have a good voice on the team um, and not really looked at for my gender, but um there are still a lot of issues in the industry um uh the grace hopper is actually coming up somewhat soon um and that's the largest uh conference for women in computing mm-hmm. um i'm involved in the open source day uh, and it's it's a way to get women more involved in the open source community which cool. is a very low percentage of women i think about uh Six percent of contributions. Don't quote me on that percentage, but I think around six percent of contributions on open source GitHub are from women. When you know the industry uh, percentage is a lot higher, um, so getting more women involved in open source can help kind of open some doors um, to potential opportunities. Uh, but the yeah. conference in general is is amazing. Nice. Did you get to ever go in person? Yeah, luckily I did. Was it Florida um, a couple of years ago? Before, yeah, it was actually in Houston that Houston, year. That's right. um, yeah, yeah so it was. It was incredible. It was the only time I've been surrounded by only women developers at that kind of magnitude. Um, it's very inspirational and, and very exciting. Um, but nice. yeah, yeah. That's cool. Well, this is the first time I've heard of that conference, so I'm assuming that some of our women listeners may not have heard of it either and may want to go. So yeah. When I was at Salesforce, Salesforce, um, it was one of the big conferences that they sponsored. So yes. I never got to go, but, um, but our, the 
team I was on did a lot with Chris Hopper. That seemed really amazing. Yeah. What's the percentage of men that go to that conference? Yeah, it's pretty low. I don't know the exact percentage, but they do try to have, um, you know, men supporters. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say maybe less than 10% men. It's primarily women. And they do have some men speakers um, for different Mm -hmm. presentations or panels. Um, Yeah, one kind of related question to this is, like, do you have any advice for Bruce and I, you know, being white men, like how can, what can we do better? What can we do to make the, the big better change in the tech world for, for making things better for women? Yeah. Um, I would say what's helped me the most is a sort of sponsorship um, from a lot of um, like some of my mentors Um giving me kind of insights on how to go about strategic things that might be kind of political that that's been helpful. Um, and also vouching for me kind of saying, yeah, Katie's great. Like she knows what she's doing. Um, in certain scenarios, it it might be kind of the tipping point to a promotion Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. to getting um, an opportunity to work on a project, um, stuff like that. Um, I I do think it's great. Obviously you guys have had other women on the podcast. It's great to give a kind of women a voice. Um, And at conferences, I've I've loved seeing women presenters. Um, But yeah, I think, I think just that support. Yeah. And that's helpful for me because I think, um, I think what comes to mind is that I need to be more proactive about that because it's probably uncomfortable for one of my woman coworkers to like come ask me and say, Hey, can you vouch for me on this or whatever? Um, like coming and asking for my support is probably hard in that situation sometimes. And I probably just need to be more proactive and go do that actively instead of being Mm -hmm. in in a, um, response it, you know, I'll be responsive. Certainly I would be supportive if somebody came and asked me, but I think that's not, but that's a big hurdle. And so one of the things that we've done in the conference during the last few years, I think Bill came up with this idea was um, we'll have a session, which is about women's experiences in technology and men can only ask questions. They can't make statements. And it's weird because if you're a man in that session, oh no, that's not a question. You know, you just, you, you, and both Bill and I were doing it. it anyways, the stuff that came up in that, ha, that has come up in that session has just been kind of mind blowing. And you realize, oh, I mean, especially there's all this training around, oh, you shouldn't um, like put yourself forward or doing. And so, coming like what you're just saying coming and asking that's a way bigger hurdle i mean it's it would be a hurdle for a white man to a white man yeah. to say hey can you you know sponsor me or promote me and imagine with all the other cultural layerings on top of that that's going to make it really hard so yeah, yeah. being proactive and saying yeah. and then maybe just asking would you like me to like uh, help you um, promote this idea or yeah. whatever. It's the one place where being reactive is not the best option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, I think even like small things, um, like at meetings, um, you know, I've been interrupted countless times. Um, even just the small action of saying, hey, hold on. I think Katie was speaking. Can you wait until mm-hmm. she's done? Something like that is, I mean, some women feel confident saying, uh, excuse me, I was talking. Some women just don't and they'll just, you know, gloss over it and be like, okay, well, there goes my opportunity to say something. Um, so even small actions like that or um, introducing people, like introducing, um, I mean, even for, I mean, this goes for men or women, um, like mentoring. I think a big piece of mentoring is introducing people to other people um, to get visibility. Um, mm-hmm. I've had that happen all. It's been really great to make those introductions. It's definitely easier in the office, but um, knowing, like getting introduced to an architect or a VP is, is so important, but uh, might not seem like that big of a deal, but to that younger engineer it might be crazy um so it's like that um yeah yeah it's it's a hard it's a hard thing um to have a good answer for but small actions definitely add up yeah yeah Mm -hmm. ultimately like using our privileged position as a way to help others who aren't privileged (laughs) Mm -hmm. which requires a lot of sometimes painful awareness which not everybody's ready for. Yeah. That's yeah. Hard. Cause you have to be go, Oh yeah. All this stuff. I just thought life was easy. And then <laughs> it like turns that. out, no, b- being a white dude, actually all of these things, but you don't want to look at those. Cause then I, I just, What's the uh, cognitive bias that they have the monopoly um, experiment for where they, they like have, they give yes. some people like, uh, they start them with a hundred dollars and they start some people with a thousand dollars. And then at the end, when they ask the people who started with a thousand dollars, who inevitably won, why did you win? Oh, I just played better than the other people. Right. And it was just this natural thing to want to believe that, no, no, I was just better. Yeah. It didn't have to, well, I think they actually tweaked the dice as well. <laughs> I think, yeah, there was, there was like a continuous, it, yeah, it was fascinating. And everybody was just going, no, I'm, I'm a good player. Yeah, I'm just better. So there's some guy, I forget the name for the company. Yeah, bias there's so many like of them. Not being, it's really hard to admit our privilege mm-hmm. and that, that contributes significantly well, to. And it's a whole world that you open up when you start looking at it. That way you, you begin to go, gee, what would it be like to be a black person walking down this street. I mean, I imagine in Crested Butte, every time I see a black person in Crested Butte, I'm going, man, we are so white here. What would that feel like? I mean, I would feel concerned at the the very least. It would change my whole perspective on on this place. It's hard and uncomfortable to change your perspective. Oh yeah, it is. And so, boy, there are things that I would sometimes just rather not think about because they're too painful. Yeah. Yeah. How, how much it would suck not to be a white dude is, is a hard one to, to want to think about. Yeah. It's it's, yeah. So yeah. And, but you have to do that first before you can go, Oh, here's how I can help. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Real quick. um, Coming back to the, the, 
advice or tips or anything for people who are getting into a programming career. Um, anything on that that comes to mind? Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, there's a few, uh, students that actually mentored that a few of them are graduated or just graduated. Um, and I always tell them, get on tech Twitter. Like Twitter is an amazing opportunity to, to meet people and connect within the tech world. I definitely, open doors for me I think or it allowed me to connect with people that are from all over the world and with conferences it's so nice to meet somebody and connect with them on Twitter and be you know talking a few years later um so the tech world of Twitter is amazing um learning opportunities as well um so much great content posted on there and, and very interesting discussions and opinions um so I definitely would say that. And, and you're on tech Twitter. Wait a minute. Is, there's a thing called tech Twitter? Just the technical community on Twitter. Okay, because yeah. I mean, I would really like to be able to say, I want to only sign up for tech Twitter. I don't filter out all the rest of that yeah. stuff that I'm not interested in. Nice. And it, I mean, that's how, that's how Twitter used to be. It was yeah. the only people that were on it were nerds, and that was really fun. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Just a yeah, curate a list of, of people to follow. Um, yeah. yeah, Twitter is great. And then on top of that, um, I mean, I always say own your own career. You know, your your manager is is managing a bunch of other people. If you if you want to get to where you want to go, make sure you're proactive about um, what you're doing to get promoted and and get to the next level or where you want to go. Um, I always say to, to always put meetings on people's calendars that you think you might not be able to get a meeting with. Uh, if you get one, you get one. If you don't, it's not the end of the world, but it's a great way to, to kind of connect with people at a higher level and see their experiences and their career paths um, and learn from that. Um, I've had a lot of great discussions and found a lot of really great mentors through that. Um, so, then, so we just like, like request a meeting with somebody and then if they say yes, you're like, awesome. And then you, and then what do you do in the meeting? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll usually ask them about their career. I mean, I usually slack them or huh. email them and say, can I put some time on your calendar? Um, I just want to hear about your story. Um, and any you mean you get people to talk about themselves, which is their favorite <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> Right. Very wily. <laughs> sure, I can set aside an hour to talk about myself. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. The topic I know best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's it works pretty well to to kind of get to know people um, and their challenges. Um, I most people I've talked to, I ask like, how do you get to where you're at? Like, I would love to be in that kind of position in the future. And a lot of times they just say, I don't know, it just happened. Things fell together. I thought I wasn't ever going to be here, but here I am today. You know, like things kind of just happen. Um, that's a big takeaway. But there are also some good insights um, that I've gotten just when you're starting out your career there's so much you don't know um there's so much to learn uh, so getting advice from people that, that have that wisdom is really important to me um cool. so yeah nice. that's awesome great great advice and maybe a great note to end on yeah mm -hmm. but 
Thank you so much for your time, Katie. It's so fun to, to see you and hopefully we can see you in person sometime at a conference somewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, thanks for all you do to help developers learn Kotlin and functional programming. And yeah, it's been been awesome to, to get to watch watch that and, and learn from you. I've certainly learned from your presentations. So um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, th thanks for having me.